He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney. He is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. Oh, what a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, October 2, 2020. Interesting times. I have such great guest lineup, I want to get right to it. The theme this week, Talking in Tongues. Dave Gunders, our troubadour, wraps up this week's show with a fascinating song. You might skip right to it. It's beautiful, the lyrics, our discussion. But first on the agenda, Brian Stelter, host of CNN's Reliable Sources. I caught him on the busiest news week. Did you watch him break the news about Donald Trump having COVID-19? I did. I was up all night with him, yet he kept his appointment with me. Brian Stelter, who figured in my own life, you will hear how. Stay tuned. Craig Silverman interviews Craig Silverman. That's right. There are two of us, actually more. But this guy's from Canada. He's a great author. And he is the guy who came up with the term fake news. How do I know that? Well, I've studied up on Craig. I got to know him. We met in Montreal. He's a Canadian. We had a great deli sandwich. Brian Stelter writes about Craig. Wait till you hear the interview. Craig on Craig. Followed by me and Ed Barad, one of Colorado's most respected lawyers, Ed Barad, is a member of the Brownstein firm, a partner for over 30 years. That is a powerful law firm. But Ed has political views all his own, and they are not in favor of Donald Trump, who he regards as an existential threat. Even my dogs are worked up. Here is Brian Stelter. Brian Stelter, I loved your book, Hoax, Donald Trump, Fox News, and the Dangerous Distortion of Truth. What a day to speak to you right after it's found out that the president and first lady apparently have COVID. We watched you cover it for CNN. What is your take after you've had, what, 15 minutes to sleep? (laughs) Yeah, about about 15 minutes Look, 2020 is going to 2020. The the worst year in, in our recent memories is just going to keep getting worse. The good news, if, if there is any good news, is that the president is feeling well and the, uh, the first lady is feeling well and only having mild symptoms. But we don't know what's going to happen with the debates, with the campaign. There was a great Los Angeles Times headline that said, nothing has changed the 2020 election yet. Will this be any different? And I think that's the right kind of skepticism to have. It doesn't seem like anything really affects the the campaign, even though there's this ocean, this torrent, this tidal wave of news. It's interesting. I I think it might freeze the race. Some people may feel sorry for Donald Trump. Some people in his base, I think they have trouble wrapping their mind around the fact that their hero could get sick. What about that? Mm, That's interesting. Well, 
yeah, there could be a wide variety of reactions. Some people having that rally around the flag reaction where you support the leader in a time of crisis. But I, I think, you know, so many people they haven't just made up their minds. Their minds are hardened to cement. You know, the, uh, the, there may not be many dramatic reactions in polling at all. I think, you know, what's most important is let's make sure that there's continuity of government. Let's make sure that the White House aides are able to be isolated and keep doing their jobs. And and let's hope that the White House is honest and transparent with the public. You know, this is a White House that does not have credibility, but they need credibility right now. You know what I liked about your book, among many things? Mm. I have a long history with Fox News myself, but yeah. you talk about fake news. You know, some people are going to label this latest news is possible fake news. Do you think that oh, will be a real thing? Oh, goodness. Yeah, I mean, there's already conspiracy theories that are crazy out there about whether this is actually a real positive result or not. I say tune out that noise as much as possible. Focus on what actually is news. But uh, conspiracy thinking is part of the country, and we have a president who is the leading conspiracy theorist in the country. So it's no wonder why other people feel emboldened to go out there and spread nonsense also. Right. And that term fake news, I was glad that you gave me the credit. No, not really. My Canadian brother from another mother who's going to be <laughs> yes. on the same podcast. Tell everybody who came up with the term fake news. Yeah, I think this is such an interesting history because it speaks to how language changes over time. Craig Silverman of BuzzFeed started writing about fake news in 2014. He defined this as made-up stories designed to deceive you that spread virally on Facebook and other social media platforms. And that's a very real phenomenon, and it still is today. So Silverman was studying this, writing about this for BuzzFeed. I picked up on it and started covering it on CNN in 2016. And then right after Election Day, this became a big national story because we started hearing about Russian trolls and these attempts to distract people about Hillary Clinton. And, of course, what happened is after the 2016 election, as I described in hoax, Trump redefined the term fake news. He glommed onto it. He exploited it. And he redefined it to mean any news he didn't like. And honestly, that's a damn shame because there is such a thing as actually fake news. It needs to be studied. It needs to be understood. And it needs to be debunked. And that's why you are the best. It's a top Sunday morning show, 9 a.m. here in Colorado. Reliable sources. I DVR it every week. You should, too. Thanks. <laughs> I know some of these Fox News personalities because I was called on as a legal analyst to talk about Jean Benet, Columbine, the Kobe Bryant case big Colorado cases. And I ended up getting to know Kimberly Guilfoyle pretty darn well. Bill O'Reilly had me on a lot. But Fox News changed just like the radio station I worked at changed in the age of Trump. That's really what your book is about, isn't it? So that's absolutely right. Fox has changed dramatically over the years. The channel's always been conservative, but now it's moved into this propaganda realm where it's a propaganda machine for the president. And and I, what I try to say in hoax is it wasn't always like this, and it doesn't have to be like this. You know, it is possible to have a channel that is conservative-oriented, that's still tethered to the truth, that doesn't feel like it's just totally a Trump sycophancy network. That's what I think is broken. And, and don't take it from me. I interviewed dozens and dozens of staffers, more than 140 people at Fox, even more people who are on the outside who say the network has gone off the rails. It's changed. We've lost our sense of news, kind of the sense of news credibility and, and gone too far off the deep end. 
Another guy I know pretty well is from Colorado, and he worked in the local market, and he's just a friendly sort of person, Kevin Cork. And you talk about being near him at a rally that you went to as you wanted to see what a Trump rally was like. Right. Guys like Kevin Cork or... Even yesterday, Fox News was so important, especially before the president COVID diagnosis took over, because there was John Roberts really pressing McEnany and the Melania tapes broke where she said, yeah, nobody would cover it, only Fox. That was really mm -hmm. interesting. And then the Hope Hicks, you write all about her. And then, of course, Chris Wallace, who was part of that debate debacle, what an your book has never been more relevant than this week. Well, I think Trump keeps proving the book correct. For example, when he goes out there and he lists off all the Fox shows he watches, he's confirming that he watches six plus hours a day. And when it comes to the coronavirus, sadly, some of his fans do believe it's a hoax. And I hope that this unfortunate news about his illness will disabuse him of that faulty notion. But this this idea in America that you can believe whatever you want and ignore the science, ignore the facts, that's the greatest hoax of all. And it needs to be challenged and, and pushed back on. You know, you brought up Kevin Cork, John Roberts. Here's, I think, the dynamic with Fox's news reporters. The network does have strong reporters at the White House and elsewhere, but increasingly they are being sidelined and they are being squeezed out. There's not enough room for them on the air. There's a lot of room for propaganda and not enough room for news. And fundamentally, that's because that's what the audience is preferring. The audience prefers the propaganda. The ratings are so much higher for the pro-Trump talk shows, and they are lower for the newscasts. And that's that's a symbol of something that's broken in America, something that's wrong in America. Not just on the right, by the way, but I think it's pretty intense on the right. I thought about that a lot as I was working for Salem Media, which was a microcosm of Fox News. And I was wondering who really is in charge? Is it management? Is it the talent? Or is it the audience? What do you think it is, Brian? I, I do think the audience is, fun, is, is well, I would say the talent, you know, the, the foxes are from fiefdoms and the talent has a lot of power. But the talent is chasing the audience, trying to please the audience. I had staffers at Fox say to me, we feel like we are held hostage by the audience. There's this obsession with ratings that's so much more severe than what I have ever experienced at CNN. And, and so it is ultimately the audience. What I found inside Fox is a leadership vacuum. A lack of strong leadership has hobbled the network. Not, not in a business sense, because the network's more profitable than ever, but it's hobbled the network editorially, so there's not a clear direction. And in the absence of a clear direction, the direction has been Trumpier and Trumpier and Trumpier. Right. And big talent will take over. You make that clear with Sean Hannity and to a degree, Laura Ingram. And the same thing happened in Denver Radio. Weak management, the biggest advertising hitter, the, the ratings winner dictates what's going on. And that can be a ticket for disaster, especially if you want to be a news station or impart truth or something close to fair and balanced. This is a this is a, a lesson about media more broadly. And I think you're right to extrapolate it. But you know, when a news outlet, when a newspaper, when a website, when a television network doesn't have strong editorial leadership, then the place can kind of fall not not totally fall apart, literally, but can kind of fall apart. People need to know who's in charge, and then they can challenge management and go their own way and be autonomous and do it their own way. But you have to know who's in charge and what the vision of the network is. And what Fox needs is more of a, a reality-based vision. 
Well, you're a big star, Brian. I mean, do you? No, uh, no you, you really are. And everybody knows it. And your star is rising just because you are so intellectual. You have a heck of a Twitter following as well. And our lives intersected on the weekend of November 16 and 17, 2019, when my yeah. mic got cut. And then you had me on the next day. And then speaking of talent, and I use that word loosely, my radio colleagues came on and said, Stelter and Silverman had this all prearranged. We may as well give up the ghost, Brian. You told me what to do, and I told you what to do. <laughs> Let's give into that conspiracy theory of yours. Did you remember all that? I do remember all that. I thought that was ridiculous. It goes to speak. It goes to show that people want to believe whatever they want to believe. Of course, it was not preordained. Of course not. You know, I just have a nose for news, and I try to chase the news. And, and you were making news there, and and of course that's what that's what's important. There have not been many cases like yours. You know, where people with you know positions of power and in, in talk radio have felt like they needed to speak out and and break from the party line. So I commend you for that. Well, thank you. We're seeing it with Miles Davis. Well, not not Miles Davis. Miles, what's his name? Is Miles he, Taylor. Yeah, Miles, Miles Taylor, Taylor is a really great. interesting example. And there's a number of other ex-Trump aides who are speaking out now um, in the final innings of the campaign. Uh, and I think that is really that is really revealing. Gosh, you know, I know everyone gets numb to all this nonsense, but it's not as if. It, there are so many former Trump aides who are calling him out saying he's dangerous to democracy. Can you even think of a single Obama aide that ever said that? Of course no. not. And there's <laughs> Olivia Troy. She's come forward from the coronavirus task force and said, Trump said, hey, COVID is great because I don't have to shake hands with these disgusting people anymore. I do think mm. he's genuinely a germaphobe if he's not in the presence of a porn star. And I think he's got to be shook personally because you can say a lot about Donald Trump, but he's been healthy as a horse. You know, a lot of candidates get hoarse when they talk that much that often, but he has great constitution. I think the man might be shook to be sick for the first time in his life, really. Yeah, you know, I, I, I do feel for him. And I think about the fear that comes along with a COVID diagnosis. It can be scary just waiting for the results. And it can definitely be scary when you're told you have a positive test result. Even though the, the numbers are on Trump's side, most people who get this illness recover and, 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 and don't suffer mightily. You know, you hear enough stories about these long haulers. You hear enough stories about these hospitalizations that it is quite scary. And hopefully the president's coping well with that. You know, what he probably should do is is not watch too much TV because, you know, then you end up watching, you know, a kind of drama, a kind of sensationalized version of what's going on. That's been what's broken about the Trump years. Trump is so fixated on Fox, so obsessed with Fox, so addicted to television that I think it's really hurt his presidency. I think that's true. And I doubt he's going to have Dr. Atlas at his bedside. I hope he has a good doctor. But what I loved about your book, Brian, and part of what ended up with me leaving Salem Media is I resented the words like hoax and sham and coup. Tell everybody why you chose that for the title of your book, Hoax, and why yeah. that word offends you. 
Well, it's about the pandemic and it's about uh, the situation we're in now with uh, people disbelieving the seriousness of this disease. Originally, this book was going to be called Wingmen because I was working on it pre-pandemic. I was writing about Trump's wingmen at Fox News. But when the pandemic changed all of our lives and I was trying to uh, rewrite this book and and reflect how Trump and Fox downplayed the disease and how damaging that was, what I did was looked at how Trump used the word hoax in February. He didn't call the virus a hoax, but he called the Democrats' politicization of the virus a hoax. So he was basically complaining that the Democrats were taking it too seriously. He called that a hoax. And Sean Hannity did the same thing in early March, saying the Democrats were overhyping the virus, calling it, making it a hoax. That is incredibly dangerous. And I think in retrospect, Hopefully someday Hannity will admit that it was dangerous to use the word hoax. This word is a nasty little word, hoax. You know, it's something malicious. If I'm trying to hoax you, that means I'm trying to hurt you, I'm trying to hurt your family. It's a, be- a very, very ugly word. But the president loves it. He uses it almost every day, usually about the Russian investigation, sometimes about other stories. Now he's talking about voter fraud. So, you know, this word hoax, I think it's a, it's a damaging word. It's a word that ends conversations. It breaks down conversations. And we, we don't need that. We, 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 need, we, need, we need more conversations in America, not fewer. We don't need this fake news hoax rhetoric from the president. Right. And it appears to be projection on the part of the president who's famous for that. And normally you would just lap something like that off. But when it gets a megaphone like Fox News, that's what's really disturbing. And It's the primetime hosts who carry this way. I know Hannity a little bit. I've been on his show, but I don't know Tucker Carlson, and I don't think I want to. You flat out pretty much accuse him of leading this white supremacy thing. Am I right, Brian? Well, I, I think that he certainly plays white identity politics as his uh, card. And there are staffers inside Fox who accuse him of engaging in white nationalism and acting like a white supremacist. You know, I think it's more powerful to hear their voices than mine. So in the book, I focus on the stories of Fox staffers who say, I refuse to go on Tucker's show. I don't want to have anything to do with him. You know, that just speaks to how polarizing the content on Fox is. I have never seen a situation quite as scary as the debate the other night when the president told the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by. We know who the Proud Boys are here in Colorado. It turned out I had a neo-Nazi producer at Salem Media. That's another story. But the bottom line is this Proud Boy thing is real. This messaging is real. You couple it with the president who told us at the debate and other times he's not going to accept the outcome of the election. You have Donald Trump Jr. calling for an army to defend their ballots. Isn't that frightening, Brian? Oh, I I am very disturbed by this voter fraud narrative. What what Trump is doing every day is he's telling his fans not to accept the outcome. Most Americans ignore him. They tune him out. They don't hear it at all. But he's telling his fans not to accept the outcome. And and the press has been laser focused on this in the last two weeks. And that's a good thing. We need to stay laser focused on this threat. Is there any chance Fox News will change? Obviously, you chronicle it. The family could change. Rupert Murdoch's an old man. But if if Fox turned on Trump the way Drudge seems to have been, I don't think talk radio is ready to turn on him. But is there any chance that Fox will stop backing Trump as big as they are? 
I think what we will see is more tension, more of a tug of war in the relationship. You mentioned John Roberts challenging the White House. I think we're going to see more of that in the end of the stage of the campaign. If Trump loses, uh, we will see more of that. But Fox is fundamentally more anti-Democrat than it is pro-Republican. So it's more anti-Biden than it is pro-Trump. And that's the secret sauce. That's why Fox wins. (laughs) Heads they win, tails they win. They win either side of the coin flip because the audience is so alienated from the rest of media that they can really, they can focus on Biden and make it a, a story about us versus them. And that's a winning strategy. I used to enjoy being on Fox News. Now it gives me a stomachache. It feels like propaganda. And you even go further, Brian Stelter. And some might argue that you went too far, but you talk about these allegations of enemy of this state. Boy, I hated when he said that. And I came on radio and I said, we're part of the media for crying out loud, enemy of this state. But you talk about a lying press and you use the German term and you tie that kind of castigation to the Nazis. Is that fair? Right. And the reason I do that is because I think that it, there's a hate movement in this country being led by the president, a hate movement against the media, and his trolls pick it up and run with it. Trolls like Tucker Carlson pick it up and run with it. Obviously, we are not living in Nazi Germany. We will never be living in, in that sort of environment. But it's that same idea of a lying press, try to destroy the credibility of the press, try to destroy a shared foundation of truth. That's where I see the similarity. Brian, I know you are so darn busy. I cannot recommend your book more strongly, Hoax, Donald Trump, Fox News, and the Dangerous Distortion of Truth. Thanks for writing it, and thanks for making time for me on such a busy day. I have to get to my next guest, Craig Silverman. That's right. That's right. What a small world. I'm going to listen to that interview. Thank you so much, Craig. Thank you, Brian. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. Dan Levitt, Sandler Training. Hi, Dan. Craig sent me. Craig Silverman? That's him. Man, can I tell you a good story about Craig? I'd love it. Once Craig took his dog, Tuffy, to a singing competition. For what purpose? Well, the dog was going to be in a dog food commercial. And how did they do? Well, Tuffy did fine. That dog, he could sing. So did they get the job? No, they didn't. There was a problem. And what was that? Well, Tuffy only sang when Craig started singing. And when that happened, Everybody around started laughing. You know, Craig's not a good singer. But Craig's a great talker. You know, he sure is. Now let's talk about how Sandler can help you. Great. My sales team really needs help. You've come to the right place. Sandler training can help you big time if you are a salesman or a sales manager. If you would like to learn more about Tuffy or me or how to make sales, call my old friend Dan Levitt, 303-829-2107, 303-829. 829-2107. Tell them Craig and Tuffy sent you. This is the Craig Silverman Show, and I'm Craig. Our democracy is at stake. It's never been more important to let your voice be heard. Join the conversation and fight for our democracy. It is our duty and our constitutional right. Follow the Craig Silverman Show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at C. Silverman Show. Be a part of the change. Now, back to the Craig Silverman Show. Oh, what a day, what a life, what a world, a world full of impactful sound. I was impacted by the sound of Judge 
Amy Coney Barrett introduced at the White House last Saturday. I watched it on my office computer live. I was working on a column for the Colorado Sun about Judge Barrett, the nominee for the U.S. Supreme Court. And I saw her family come out with the Trumps. And what a darling family. And they had me when little Benjamin was introduced, a Down syndrome kid. I admire the parents who have raised Benjamin and those others, including two adoptees from Haiti. And there they were in the front row listening to mom talk. And here is what she had to say. The president has asked me to become the ninth justice. And as it happens, I'm used to being in a group of nine, my family. Our family includes me, my husband, Jesse, Emma, Vivian, Tess, John Peter, Liam, Juliet, and Benjamin. Vivian and John Peter, as the president said, were born in Haiti, and they came to us five years apart when they were very young. And the most revealing fact about Benjamin, our youngest, is that his brothers and sisters unreservedly identify him as their favorite sibling. Our children obviously make our life very full. While I am a judge, I'm better known back home as a room parent, carpool driver, and birthday party planner. When schools went remote last spring, I tried on another hat. Jesse and I became co-principals of the Barrett eLearning Academy. And yes, the list of enrolled students was a very long one. Our children are my greatest joy, even though they deprive me of any reasonable amount of sleep. And while Judge Barrett was speaking, nobody knew that she already had COVID-19 this summer. I don't know that her children were checked, but I do know that Melania Trump sat right at the end of the row of Barrett children. And I do know that several people were diagnosed with COVID-19 who attended that Saturday ceremony that was so important to so many people. I know the pro-life community, and especially devout Catholics who believe that abortion is a fundamental sin. They were in a joyous mood. The people of the religious right, the pro-life community at the White House, there was hugging. Look at the Washington Post. They have video of Senator Mike Lee hugging a bunch of people. They were so happy. It was like a wedding, a bar mitzvah, celebration, and yet COVID spread. And maybe to the Trumps. I don't know how everybody got it. I do know that the Trump side has some really zealous supporters who go over the top. I was on Denver Trump Radio, and as I just discussed with Brian Stelter, I still think it's remarkable how I know Brian Stelter. I never knew the guy. I followed him on Twitter. And when I got my mic cut, he saw that apparently, found me on Twitter, not the other Craig Silverman. He's coming up later in the show. He took that tag, but you can find me. And Stelter found me, found that I followed him and direct messaged me. Hey, what's going on? Can we talk? He called me on my home phone and then he booked me as a guest. That's the way I book guests, just like I booked Brian Stelter. Although he has a handler, he and I ended up emailing each other and doing it directly. 
And what a cool thing after he was up all night covering it for CNN. He still makes time for me. And he said the nice things that he did. Of course, for people on Denver Trump Radio with their conspiracy theories, they said, ah, Stelter and Silverman and CNN, it was all cooked up, don't you know? And they've got this Trump zealot. I'll use his name, Randy Corcoran. And he wants to be a celebrity. And he wants to ride the Trump train to do it. And if you want to be a good Trumpster, you embrace conspiracy theories. And there was Craig in his great blue suit. And that Sunday night after the Saturday, they took me off the air. Corcoran came to the conclusion, hey, that great suit, he was wearing it when I saw him on Saturday, November 16th. Only he's wrong. I have a photograph of what I was wearing that day, dressed like a schlepper. It was two weeks before November 2nd when I went to a bat mitzvah right after my show, and I told people that's why I'm dressed up. And it was uh, Bob Steen's kid, Carter Steen, at Temple Sinai. I had my good blue suit on. But Corcoran doesn't let two weeks get in the way. He just makes up stuff. And he created a conspiracy theory. And this is the way that played out. Here was Corcoran on Backbone Radio, a Sunday night show on 710 KUS, ostensibly hosted by Matt Dunn, who got run over that night. But Kirk Whitland was there, my former producer, who turned out to be a neo-Nazi. And he and Corcoran together made up this story about a conspiracy involving Stelter and me. And it began that Sunday night with Corcoran's revelations about I caught Silverman wearing his great suit for TV. He had it all planned. Wow, what a Sherlock Holmes he is not. And I just happened to notice that he was dressed up in a really nice suit. And that's unusual, um, you know, unless he's flying out of town or has some kind of a religious thing or whatever. Uh, I've never seen him in anything but jeans or sweats or a typical Saturday morning, early morning fair. Um, and it didn't even occur to me that it meant anything until I saw this morning, uh, I think on Channel 2, they were telling a story about how, you know, talk radio hosts let go by conservative station for being derogatory about Trump. And the picture they were showing... Uh, looked to me like the exact same suit he was wearing. So as I started to see all this unfolding, I wondered if, you know, maybe he was already planning or dressed up or ready for these interviews he's been doing. I did well on reliable sources. And when I read Stelter's book, Hoax, I realized that Fox News and 710 KUS, similar circumstances. Hannity really controls things at Fox. They have weak management. Peter Boyles controls things at KNUS. I know he was involved in what happened to me. And that's cool. I said it well on Brian Stelter. I said, you know, the hosts control who comes on their shows. And of course, I got cut out, shut out. It was similar to what happened to various personalities at Fox News who would not get with the program. Here's some more of corporate spinning false stories. Against little old me on Backbone Radio. Just about a year ago, come November, mid-November, November 16 is when I lost my gig. November 17 
is when Corcoran started his conspiracy theory. He was so good at this. And I was watching him as a lawyer, and he looked nervous. It was unusual. He's got a lot of TV experience. But Brian Stelter asked him, uh, you know, he, he threw it out there directly. Were you taken off the air because of your opposition to Donald Trump? And Craig, very lawyer-like, very carefully avoided not answering that question. His response was, and it's the one truthful thing that I've heard so far about this whole thing, is he said, well, the hosts choose their content. But, but he left the impression out there. And it really got good. And it intersected with Fox News because this gal named Jen Kearns, who said she wants had a job writing for Fox News or whatever, came on and said, no way would Silverman have been on a big Sunday show like Reliable Sources without pre-booking well before the weekend. She was put on all the shows at KNUS to support this conspiracy theory. And these conspiracy theories get dangerous. There was a guy down in Florida who wanted to attack CNN and others based on conspiracy theories. The Tree of Life massacre, that happened because of Trump created conspiracy theories about an invasion. And this guy bought into it and he wanted to stop the invasion at the synagogue that hosted highest Hebrew immigration society. These things have consequences, these conspiracy theories, and we know what kind of people traffic in them. It's Trumpism. It's bad. It's bigoted. But here is what is really bad. What Donald Trump did and said this past Tuesday, the man is sick and in Walter Reed Hospital. I hope he gets well, but we will not forget what he did to threaten America on Tuesday in Cleveland at the debate talking about the Proud Boys who should stand back and stand by as he argues that the election is rigged unless he wins. What a dangerous combination. What a terrible thing to say. Here's a good report on it out of the New York affiliate of NBC. Now, one moment at the debate shocked a lot of viewers. The president refused to condemn white supremacists and hate groups. Instead, he urged followers of one group to, quote, Stand back and stand by. And the fallout has been swift. Republican leaders, even. Donald Trump Jr. said the president misspoke on that. News for investigative reporter Sarah Wallace explains why his answer worried so many people. It was a simple question during the debate. Moderator Chris Wallace asking the president if he would be willing to condemn white supremacists and militia groups. He said he would, but then. What do you want to call them? Give me a name. Give me a white name. White supremacists and right like me to condemn? White supremacists and right Proud Boys. Boys. Stand back and stand by. Immediately following that exchange, the Proud Boys posted this logo to social media with the president's words. Stand back, stand by. The far-right group, a self-described pro-Western fraternal organization for men, has been tied to several violent incidents at recent protests. And then combine it with the diabolical words of Donald Trump Jr. What a disgrace for the son of an American president to try to gather an extra military army to defend the ballots. My gosh, have we lost our bearings when Donald Trump Jr. says this? The radical left are laying the groundwork to steal this election from my father, President Donald Trump. They are planting stories that President Trump 
I'll have a landslide lead on election night, but we'll lose when they finish counting the mail-in ballots. Their plan is to add millions of fraudulent ballots that can cancel your vote and overturn the election. We cannot let that happen. We need every able-bodied man, woman to join Army for Trump's election security operation at defendyourballot.com. We need you to help us watch them, not just on election day, but also during early voting and at the counting boards. President Trump is going to win. Don't let them steal it. Go to defendyourballot.com and enlist today. I spoke about Olivia Troy with Brian Stelter. I admire her as an insider, a Republican, a conservative. I bet she's religious working for Mike Pence. She was on the coronavirus task force, part of the Pence team. She was high up and she got disgusted because Donald Trump did not take this pandemic seriously, despite having the information. And we know that Olivia Troy is correct because we have Donald Trump talking to Bob Woodward and he let us all down by hiding the truth. Here's Olivia Troy talking about Donald Trump and his poor reaction to the pandemic. I'm Olivia Troy. I was Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor to Vice President Pence and served as Vice President Pence's lead staff member on the COVID-19 response. You know, I've been on the COVID task force from day one. I mean, the virus was very unpredictable at the beginning. There were a lot of unknowns, but towards the middle of February, we knew it wasn't a matter of if COVID would become a big pandemic here in the United States. It was a matter of when. But the president didn't want to hear that because his biggest concern was that we were in election year and how is this going to affect what he considered to be his record of success. It was shocking to see the president saying that the virus was a hoax, saying that everything's okay when we know that it's not. The truth is he doesn't actually care about anyone else but himself. And can you imagine this president who says he likes the pandemic because he won't shake hands of the disgusting people? Thank goodness for people like Olivia Troy. He made a statement once that was very striking. I never forgot it because it pretty much defined who he was. When we were in a task force meeting, the president said, maybe this COVID thing is a good thing. I don't like shaking hands with people. I don't have to shake hands with these disgusting people. Those disgusting people are the same people that he claims to care about. These are the people still going to his rallies today who have complete faith in who he is. If the president had taken this virus seriously, or if he had actually made an effort to tell how serious it was, he would have slowed the virus spread. He would have saved lives. It was the opportunity in honor of a lifetime. So that's my week of impactful sound. I love doing a podcast. I'm able to get great guests, including my brother from another mother, Craig Silverman from Canada. Great author, great interview. Stay tuned. When we talk about medical directives, what sort of qualities are we looking for there? You're looking for somebody who cares about you, somebody who wants to take care of you but also somebody who's not afraid of making that decision because, you know, bad things might happen. You know, if, if you have a, a son or a daughter who, you know, absolutely, you know, is a stereotypical mama's boy and can't imagine anything bad ever happening to his mom, 
and then suddenly has to make a decision about what kind of surgery mom needs to have or you know are we going to what treatment option are we going to have for mom and paralyzed by oh no i can't have anything bad happen to mom not the right person so you want somebody who can look at a situation still loves their still loves the person but is able to do do what's right and do what's necessary for your parents or for whoever you have that you're acting on behalf of my lawyer michael bailey his rates are reasonable and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want and on weekends and evenings 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com hey there i'm not going to take a lot of your time i've been a lawyer almost 40 years my brother was a lawyer my father a denver lawyer my grandfather a denver lawyer If you have a legal problem, call me, 303-861-2800, 303-861-2800. If I'm not the right lawyer for you, I bet I know somebody who is. 303-861-2800, thank you. Now back to the Craig Silverman Show. Hey Craig, it's Craig. Hello, Craig. How is my brother from another Canadian mother? (laughs) I'm keeping it Craig, you know. How are you doing? Excellent. Tell everybody your name. So I'm Craig Silverman, the Canadian Craig Silverman. I'll be darned. I'd like to meet you someday. Oh, we have. Remember that beautiful lunch we had in Montreal? It was delicious at Beauties. I mean, that was a legendary place. Yeah. And now you've moved to Toronto, another city I've never been to. I have to come visit you there. Yes, I've been here about five years now. Are you allowing Americans into your country yet? No, we're not. The the bridges are closed. The flights are not happening. So for right now, you know, we remain good friends, but separate friends, very separate. I'll tell you what. I got to know this, Craig, by reading his book, Regret the Error, How Media Mistakes Pollute the Press and Imperil Free Speech. It was an excellent book. What was it, about 10 years ago now? Yeah, it came came out 13 years ago, in fact. Yeah. Tell everybody your background, Craig, and how you got to be a big star. (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm a journalist. I've been one for a long time now, more than 20 years. And in 2004, I started a a blog called Regret the Air. I was a, a freelance journalist. And I decided to really start blogging and researching and learning as much as possible about fact-checking and verification and how journalists try to prevent making mistakes and what we do when we make them. And that, you know, as you mentioned, led to a book. And really, over time, that has morphed into looking a lot at, of course, our social media universe and doing a lot of reporting on rumors and, you know, falsehood, disinformation, the way social networks and our media environment are being manipulated. And so I've been a a media reporter and had a, a strong focus on rumors and disinformation for about a, a decade now and sort of specialize in digital investigations and disinformation detection and all the crazy ways that our media environment is, is being manipulated and abused uh, and exploited for, you know, falsehoods, misleading information, radicalization, that kind of stuff. I don't know if your ears were burning, but I was just speaking with Brian Stelter of CNN and we were talking about you, and I think you know why. I've kind of earned a a distinction, maybe a dubious distinction, 
Yeah, I can I could guess maybe the term fake news was part of the conversation. Correct. And now it's forever associated with our name. <laughs> Explain it to everybody. <laughs> that's that's true. I guess I've kind of put it on you now a little bit as well to a certain extent. So in 2014, I was doing a research project and I was I was this was with the Tau Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia where I was kind of tracking viral hoaxes, viral rumors, and unverified claims. And I was really interested in how news websites were covering information that was in that gray zone between, well, we don't know if it's fully true, we don't know if it's fully false, what were they doing? And I was also interested in coming up with some of the best advice for newsrooms about how to deal with that stuff and how to debunk falsehoods. And in the course of that research, in the fall of 2014, I came across websites. They had names like National Report and other ones sort of pretended to be science websites. And everything that they published was false. And they were they were completely made up news organizations. And I started referring to them as fake news websites, publishing fake news. You know, all the articles were false. They were masquerading as real journalists and real news outlets. And so that was part of my research was looking at this model and the reason they existed was because they could make money. They had ads on the websites. And then the other key thing was Facebook. When they put these headlines and shared them on Facebook and the links, people were, were believing them. They were sharing them. They were passing them around. And that was driving huge amounts of traffic to these sites. So they were earning, you know, tens of thousands of dollars a month easily. Did that simple phrase, fake news, just pop into your head? It seemed like the most literal description of what I was seeing. These were fake news websites. They were, you know, they were trying to make it look like they were news websites, but they were completely fake. And so I started using that term and really started looking at this kind of profit-driven ecosystem of falsehoods all the way through 2015. And then into 2016, in fact, I remember in August of 2016, I published an article about two Canadian teenagers who were making a good amount of money doing fake news articles about Justin Trudeau in Canada. And then they started throwing Trump in a little bit and, and it was doing really well for them and continued to use that term all the way through the election. And of course, then in January 2017, Donald Trump started using it. And that's, I think, when it became a really famous term and became a pretty abused term as well. And do you think he or somebody in his orbit was aware of your use of the term and turned it around? Yeah, I think what happened is, so after Election Day in 2016, you know, I had been tracking this, this universe of, of false information for some time, and I published an article that looked at the top performing completely false, like fake news articles on Facebook about the election. I compared that to the top performing, you know, the most shared, the most commented articles about the election from 19 different major news organizations. And, and I did a kind of a study where I compared and showed that the most viral fake news articles got more total engagement in the last three months before the election than the total engagement for the top performing articles from real news organizations. And, and that story itself went really viral. And, and I think that started kicking people off talking about whether fake news and falsehoods got Trump elected. And I would just say simply, like, I don't think false stories got Trump elected. I think there were a whole bunch of factors that just aligned perfectly for him to win. But a lot of people started looking for a simple answer to a complicated result. And I think it got to a point where it got to Donald Trump and he started to say, oh, people think I won because of fake news. You know, I'm going to show them. And, and so he had his press conference in January 2017 and he pointed at 
a journalist from CNN and said, you are fake news. And I think he decided to kind of take it and make it his own term at that point. I think that was Jim Acosta, who's now reporting on the president, who's just been diagnosed with COVID. Yes. What do you make of today's developments? It's it's like another insane day on the top of really, you know, more than four years of, of just insane nonstop news. It is just a relentless punishing news cycle. And when it comes to this specific piece of news, you know, the reality is that the president didn't seem to really be adhering to the standard advice to prevent infection and transmission. He would wear a mask occasionally, but was not a fan and, in fact, made fun of Joe Biden wearing masks during their recent debate. He, you know, he's not a big handshaker normally, but he does get close to people, interact with them, was not distancing and was not requiring staff to do any of those things in the White House. And so in a way, it's not surprising, although it is still a very much a shock that, you know, he's caught it. The first lady has caught it. Senator Mike Lee has caught it. The president of Notre Dame, who was there for the SCOTUS candidate announcement, has caught it. We're in the early stages of what, what seems to be a, a potentially significant transmission event here. And we don't know how many people it's ultimately going to infect. I watched that ceremony last Saturday introducing Amy Coney Barrett. No social distancing, no masks, even for her beautiful seven children. I thought it extraordinary. And you could tell, especially amongst Catholics gathered, they were loving it. And why not? They just achieved a milestone. Who knows whether this nomination can go forward, especially if that was a super spreader. And a lot of people are going to be sick. Mike Lee, I wonder if he was at that ceremony. I think he was, wasn't he? I believe he was. Yeah, it was an event that, yes, obviously for Catholics and for other people, this was for them a really momentous nomination that, you know, that she's going to be put forward as a candidate. But there was just no guidance. There was no requirement put in place to really make everyone safe there. And and it was the same at the debates, apparently. You know, there's been reports now that some of the, the Trump family, as they watched the debate, they didn't wear masks and they and they declined, you know, an invitation to do so. And so I, I hope that there's a wake up call in this and people realize that, you know, these simple measures actually can help and not following them puts you at significant risk. Unfortunately, I'm not super optimistic that, that the president is necessarily going to change his tune. I mean, you know, hopefully he comes through this OK, but I can't imagine he's going to become a super mask evangelist at the end of this. No, I think we can look at the Brazilian president Bolsonaro to kind of figure out Hopefully Trump survives it. He's okay. But what about those who might label this fake news? I don't know if you've seen David Remnick's piece in The New Yorker, The October Surprise. He says this is it. And he doesn't go so far as to say it's contrived, but he sort of implies it. We, what we're seeing already, uh, you know, the, the news came out. It was late, late in the evening. And what we're seeing already is some people absolutely not believing this. And I think they're falling into different categories. So there are definitely liberals, there are people on the left who just simply don't believe anything, you know, are inclined to not believe the things that Trump says and think that there may be some ulterior thing here. You know, I've seen people floating the idea that, oh, he's faking because he's going to, you know, miraculously take a cure and talk about how they've got a cure or a vaccine coming and, and you know, make it seem like a big win. You know, there's no evidence of that at all. He has COVID-19. There's no evidence he's faking. I think it's a silly thing to for people to really go to that extent. There's also 
other people from the QAnon conspiracy community, which is a, a more kind of connected to, to the right-leaning side of things, who also think that this is a ruse, but they think it's a ruse because this is all part of the grand plan of Trump to, you know, finally arrest people like Hillary Clinton and others. And, you know, the great storm is going to arrive with tons of Democrats and other people being arrested. And so you have different conspiracy theories around this. At the core of it, they claim that Trump doesn't really have it. But, you know, there is there is zero evidence that he doesn't have it. And in fact, we see all these people around him who have been interacting with him for several days going back who have it. So, you know, unfortunately, this is this is the world we're in right now where these kinds of things kick up with any kind of big piece of news. You've probably heard of the Georgia House candidate, almost certain to win, who is a QAnon supporter. We have a race with a Republican candidate. She beat Scott Tipton, a five-term congressman in the Republican primary. Her mm. name is Lauren Boebert, and she's sort of down with QAnon. What do you make of QAnon? It's it's embarrassing to me as an American. Does it have any Canadians in it as well? Yes. This is a made in America conspiracy movement that has gone global. And it has gone global, if we're thinking about the transmission aspect of it, really in a big way, thanks to Facebook. But it's also gone global because it, in the classic kind of conspiracy theory way, it offers people a one unified, simple theory that explains, you know, all of the events around them in the world. It, you know, it makes them believe that there is, you know, a horrible cabal of evil elites who are child predators and who all of them are about to get their comeuppance, thanks to Donald Trump. And so, in a sense, it's, it's very much made in America. But yes, we have it in Canada. We've seen it spread to Europe. People are, have been very active in Facebook groups, kind of spreading this and drawing people in and recruiting them. And so it is something that has gone global and it fits with the classic kind of elements of conspiracy theories. But there's an element of it also where it's kind of participatory, where, you know, people feel like they describe themselves as like a digital army, as citizen investigators, as researchers. So it's kind of almost like a game where you can mine the public statements of Trump and other figures and decode them to mean whatever you want. Uh, and so it's got these kind of gamified aspects and is very active on social media. And in that sense, it's a very contemporary kind of conspiracy theory. I always thought conspiracy theories were sort of silly and like a game, just as you described. But then I read Barry Weiss's book about how to stop anti-Semitism, and I realized what I should have a long time ago that these conspiracy theories are dangerous. And QAnon is not dissimilar from the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which was a manuscript for why Jews should be persecuted, substitute Jews for elites, George Soros, Hollywood, all of that. There are some dangerous similarities there, aren't there, Craig? There are. There absolutely are. And I mean, there, there are certainly anti-Semitic elements in QAnon as well. You mentioned George Soros. And, and I think that in some of the language and messaging that you see around it related to him specifically, it, that rears its head. And it is dangerous. Yes. I mean, you know, there was a guy who drove to the Hoover Dam with a car full of weapons who was a QAnon follower. If you remember in 2016, the guy who went to Comet Ping Pong, the D.C. pizza parlor and fired off some shots thinking that there were, you know, children being exploited in the basement. Well, that was the or that was Pizzagate, which is the early precursor to to and it has been kind of rolled into QAnon. So there were there have been absolutely violent acts 
there have been cases of QAnon followers, you know, sort of running off and, and sort of kidnapping with their own children. And so there are real world consequences to this. In addition to the normal thing you see with conspiracy theories where, you know, people are basically mourning the loss of their family members who completely fall down the rabbit hole and they can no longer talk to them and interact with them in a basic way. So we do have to treat these things seriously. It is encouraging, in some cases, violent acts. It speaks about the world in very violent, apocalyptic ways, and it justifies potentially violent behavior. And so it is something that you can't just dismiss as, as silliness, like you know, people who believe Elvis is still alive. This is potentially dangerous, without question. Right. And they get further conspiracy theories via the White House, via Fox News. I was just speaking about it with Brian Stelter. We didn't go into this particular episode, but his book does. The story leading up to the 2018 midterms in America was about an invasion coming up from Central America through Mexico, soon to arrive. And it was a bunch of conspiracy theory nonsense. But a guy in Pittsburgh acted on it, and he killed over a dozen people at the Tree of Life synagogue. And then you had that other guy down in Florida who was going to attack major media entities like CNN. It's really pretty dangerous, these conspiracy theories. They are. And and I mean, you know, I guess it's inevitable that Trump comes up so much in a conversation. But the fact that he, you know, on his Twitter account, he's often retweeting QAnon followers. He's giving winks and nods to conspiracy theories and floating his own conspiracy theories. He was an Obama birther. And so when you have someone in a position of authority kind of giving oxygen to this stuff, encouraging it, floating their own conspiracy theories, when you have other leaders and other influential people doing that, it can, it can raise these things to a much higher level of consciousness, and it gives it an aura of authority. And that is what a lot of the conspiracy theory people really seek is, is you know, that, that sense of authority, that sense of approval so that they are not off in the corners, but it's actually coming from the president's Twitter account. And, and that heightens it. It recruits more people to it. But it, I think it also emboldens the followers to potentially do worse things because they feel like they have license to do so. It must be good to be in Canada right now. We're not feeling that exceptional as Americans anymore. What is the Canadian view of the United States right now? You know, I, I mean, I think because the two countries are so close and, and you know, I, I work for an American news organization, but I'm based in Canada. All my, you know, all my colleagues almost are, are Americans. And I think there is a sense of looking at it and just really being amazed at, at this incredibly difficult, contentious, scary moment that's taking place in the United States. I think a lot of Canadians are, are really concerned and surprised at what's going on. And we were joking about sort of the borders being open or closed. When it comes to COVID, I mean, obviously, Canadians are very concerned that the U.S. has become the epicenter of the virus and are concerned health-wise about having the borders open at the same time when there's so much trade and that trade needs to keep going. So it feels very precarious given that, you know, we are the much smaller country in terms of population and economy. We very much rely on those close ties with the U.S. But right now, I think most Canadians are really kind of shocked with the extent of, of you know, the conflict and the divisiveness and then the spread of the virus in the U.S. right now. Maybe our system of government just doesn't work that well. Our political parties aren't working. Our government, with its checks and balances, it's not operating well. Do you guys have a better system up in Canada? 
You know, I, I think that for a lot of Western democracies, a lot of us, I think, are feeling pain right now. Certainly, when you look at polls or when you look at research about the Canadian population, we don't seem to be as divided and have as much hyperpartisanship as as exists in the United States right now. But that doesn't mean you know our governments function perfectly. You know, we we are having reckonings with racial injustice and inequality in our society, like the U.S. is experiencing. And I do think that it feels to me like a lot of us who've been very fortunate to live in countries like Canada and the U.S., maybe we started to take our freedoms and our democracy and our systems for granted. And it feels like we're in a moment right now where people are seeing the flaws in our institutions and in our systems. And hopefully we all come out on the other side renewing them, building them up stronger, doing them in a way that is more equitable, more fair, more just, and and meets the kind of goals that we all want for our society. So I don't, I think sometimes Canadians can have a little bit of smugness about things, but, you know, we have to face our problems as well and our challenges. And while they may not be the same, I think everyone in a Western democracy needs to look at it and realize this is hard work. Democracy is not just by default. You have to really work hard for it and you have to want to make your systems better and invest in them and build them up. You work for BuzzFeed. You are the media editor. You've done that for a while. How goes it at BuzzFeed? How is your media entity doing? Well, I think like a lot of media companies, we got we really got punched in the face in March and April when it comes to the, the business side of things. Now, I work for BuzzFeed News, which is obviously our newsroom, but BuzzFeed itself, of course, does lots of stuff, most stuff that isn't news, you know, more entertainment type lists and quizzes and shopping content and videos and that kind of thing. And just like I think, you know, a lot of other people in media, um, you know, the advertising really started to pull back and dry up in March and April. And so we've had furloughs that turned into layoffs. Everyone in the company took pay cuts. But what seems to be happening, there is a bit of a rebound. So apparently our third quarter in terms of revenue as a company was really good. The fourth quarter to the end of the year is looking really good. And the company actually reinstated people back to their usual salaries as of the September 30th pay. So it seems like there is some recovery. Obviously, we've had some record traffic as people really look to news websites to get authoritative information. And so it's been a big push to, to do good work and to, and to push hard. And it seems to be a bit of a, re- a relief now that the business side is rebounding, but it, nobody really knows how long this is going to go on for. We're in a very uncertain moment right now. And so we might have two good quarters and then a really tough one starting next year. And so I think, you know, uncertainty is the rule here. Does BuzzFeed strive for media neutrality? I mean, do you guys try to be ideologically neutral? I think we talk about trying to be accurate, trying to be fair, and then trying to also be honest about what's really going on. And so we won't pretend to sort of give both sides of something if it's a case where there is really clearly, say, dishonesty on one side or not. And so we are absolutely not ideologically aligned with any political party. But I think it's also true that You know, if you talk to most people who work at BuzzFeed in the newsroom and outside of the newsroom, most of them are, you know, younger people who probably personally lean more left. But we don't hesitate to do tough reporting about Democrats or about, you know, left wing movements. And so we are trying to be an honest broker. At the same time, you know, when our story about Trump contracting COVID, you know, our our lead of the story wasn't just the president has COVID. It was that he has spent months and months downplaying the severity of the virus, has not worn masks, 
and now he has the virus. And, you know, for us, that's the honest way to say it. Some people might see that as biased, but we're trying to to not fall into that trap of pretending like there's no, we don't have a perspective and not trying to account for whatever, you know, personal views there might be in the newsroom. I think you have to be honest about your own personal bias and try to account for that in doing honest work. It's like reporting on the election and Donald Trump's attempts to delegitimize the election. I think the press has to be strong on that. And even though he's the president, call it out here in Colorado, we've had universal mail ballots for quite a while and it works perfectly. So how do you think news agencies are dealing with this implied threat and Donald Trump Jr. saying, join our army, go to the polls, protect the ballots? What does it look like from up north? I mean, one, there hasn't been a president in the U.S. that I can think of who's ever talked about the electoral process in as negative and as damaging a way as Trump does. Like that is whether you want to vote for him or not, that's just not the normal behavior. And it, it is undermining confidence in the system. That doesn't mean the system is perfect. I mean, you, you know, you, you have to point out the things that need to be improved and the flaws, but it is a systematic attack at undermining confidence in the system and also undermining confidence in mail-in voting, which is going to be extremely critical given, you know, the coronavirus and that kind of thing. So, yes, I think that there has been coverage where the people haven't been very clear about how unprecedented it is for a president to say the things that he has been saying. And where also, and this you know comes from me and my background in this, this focusing on disinformation, you can't just put up a false claim without the context around it. Otherwise, the false claim is what people are going to remember. You can't unring that bell. And so I, I, it's incredible to me that you know, this long into Trump's tenure, where he says so many false things, it's incredible to me that there are still news organizations who will just tweet his false statement and not put any corrective material and information around that. They won't lead with what's right. They will lead with the false claim. And that is dangerous. Right. And unfortunately, we're still seeing news organizations do that. Absolutely. Think about the time, money, expense, talent, put into that New York Times blockbuster story about Trump's tax returns. And then he dismisses it by quoting you, Craig. He said fake news. That's what got me thinking about you. How did you feel when you heard him say that after this journalistic bombshell, his retort, fake news? Well, I think my reaction probably speaks to where we are at this point, which is that my reaction is that I wasn't surprised and I didn't really think twice about it. But of course, for that to be the response, from a public figure about, you know, that revelatory and that well-sourced uh, story, you know, we need more than that. We need a more substantive response. That's not good enough, but it has become his shorthand. And I, I for me personally, I pretty much cringe anytime I hear the term fake news used in that context. I do feel a certain kind of personal connection to it. Obviously, when I was using the term, I had a specific definition for it. And where it sits now is, is very different from that, but it is something that is kind of connected to me and the work I've done. And it's, it is always strange to hear the president use it, just like it's strange when I see world leaders from other countries using it in attempts to delegitimize real reporting or in attempts to silence the opposition. I mean, that's been the worst part of how, uh, how fake news as a term got famous is it's been used as a way to really beat free press and beat up on independent reporting and beat up on uh, democratic opposition. And that is obviously a terrible outcome. It's authoritarian. I don't know if you've read yeah. Brian Stelter's book, Hoax, but he goes so far as to say that lying press reference harkens back to the Nazis. The Lugan press. Yes. 
Yeah, that, that was a term used by the Nazis to talk about the press, the lying press. And uh, you see that actual term pop up every now and again. There's a you know sort of far right media outlet in Canada, and the head of that, who actually is Jewish, has I saw him using the term Lugan Press at one point. And so it it is absolutely part of an authoritarian playbook. You have to delegitimize criticism of you. You have to delegitimize and humiliate those whose job it is to hold you accountable and to go against you when it comes to you know political opponents. And so. Delegitimizing the media, insulting the media, humiliating the media as much as possible is is a standard approach for being able to just say and do whatever you want. Well, it's great to talk to you. How do you think the big three newspapers in America are doing? New York Times, Washington Post, and Wall Street Journal. Well, on a business level, they're the best they've been in probably more than a decade, and I think that's a good thing for the U.S. and a good thing for democracy. Doesn't mean that they do perfect work. No journalist does perfect work. There are always always ways to improve. But I think strong media outlets like them that put a premium on original reporting, that's the key thing, doing original reporting, turning up facts, is really important. You know, I think they, they obviously, these are legacy institutions. They still, I think at times, in terms of framing this really unique moment in American history, I think there are some times where they, they leap for kind of tropes, where, for example, to me, the story of the debate was Trump, you know, refusing to really clearly condemn white supremacy. That was really a big takeaway from it. I think a lot of the headlines we saw were sort of like, oh, you know, contentious debate. Well, you know, I think there was something a little bit more than that than to just sort of imply that it was, you know, the two of them going at it the whole time. So business-wise, they're in great position. They're doing fantastic reporting. And their newsrooms are, I think in, in each case, I think their newsrooms are bigger than they have ever been. So that's pretty incredible, considering there were a lot of people roughly about a decade ago or even seven or eight years ago, in particular with The Times and The Washington Post, kind of writing them off for dead. The other print outlet that's been major in the news is The Atlantic, not with the stature of those other publications. But Jeffrey Goldberg put his reputation on the line, quote, the piece by General Mattis, who wrote it himself, and then the apparent quotes from General Kelly. I was expecting a follow-up. So tell us, Craig, what do you think of Jeff Goldberg, that story? And do you think General Kelly will come forward? So, I mean, I think that story is important in the sense that, you know, Trump presents himself as kind of the law and order guy and a pro-military guy, you know, put more money into the, the Pentagon budget since he's been president and all those things. And to hear and, and to, to hear and read sort of his, his view of people who served, which was not completely surprising given what he has publicly said about, had publicly said about John McCain, I think it was a real punch to the gut. And I think the Trump campaign saw the danger of that story because of the importance of the military to their base. And, and they've really done everything they could to try and discredit it. As far as I'm concerned, I think, I think it checks out, not just because of you know, how it's been corroborated by other news organizations since then, but because Trump has literally said this stuff about John McCain you know, and not respecting him because he got captured and that kind of thing. And so in that sense, it stands up really well. And the, the Atlantic has also, I think it's worth mentioning, been doing incredible reporting about the coronavirus, some of the best that I've seen out there for sure. So I think they've really stepped up and, and been doing some great reporting lately. Uh, as for General Kelly, I mean, I, I think if he was going to come forward, he probably would have done it in that story. And unless something drastic happens, it seems like his decision is to really 
you know, give interviews, but not have his name on them. And that seems to be where he's he's landed. Would you agree Jeffrey Goldberg has a good reputation? Yeah, I, th- I think he does. I mean, he's obviously been an editor for years, more than a writer. But one of the dynamics for people to understand is, you know, when you are a top level editor at a prominent publication and someone who's been a journalist as long as he has, you still often interact with people in the halls of power. You still can develop sources. And there are lots of times where top editors, where they may not be writing a lot of articles, they may actually be sending and introducing sources to their reporters, to their writers. So for me, it wasn't it, I, it wasn't a red flag that somebody who's primarily an editor suddenly came out with that big scoop of a story, because obviously he travels in the halls of power in Washington and has been there for a long time. While you are an established, bona fide big man in media, having come up with the term fake news, you've done a lot of other great work, and you have a lot of Twitter followers. Tell everybody where they can follow you at Twitter. Yeah, so I'm on Twitter, very simple, at Craig Silverman. I forced my fellow Craig Silverman here to find another handle and managed to grab that one first. I know it, but you paid the price when I had my incident in mid-November of 2019. You got barraged with people thinking that you were me, and you tweeted something funny in that regard. I can't remember exactly. Do you? Yeah, I mean, basically, there were times where I have to tell people they've got the wrong Craig Silverman, but I did say that I stood in solidarity with my fellow Craig Silverman when it came to that incident. I appreciated that. My late mother used to say when asked, are you Craig's mother? She would say, why? You know, before <laughs> she acknowledged it. Anyway, I hope things are going great for you in Canada. I really never have been to Toronto. If your country ever lets Americans back in, I'd love to come visit you and see another great Canadian city. I had a great time with you in Montreal and a really nice time talking to you again. Thanks a lot, Craig. Thank you, Craig. I, I love coming on the show and you've absolutely got a a lunch or a dinner companion if you make your way to toronto i hope it happens thank you have a great week thanks you too follow the craig silverman show on facebook twitter and instagram at c silverman show and subscribe to the craig silverman show podcast on spotify apple stitcher don't quit on democracy be a part of this historic moment connect with us on social media at C. Silverman Show. In my practice of law, Michael Bailey, decisions are often left to a personal representative. God forbid a person gets killed. That's an important decision you can make ahead of time. Who is going to be your personal representative? What is your advice in that regard? So you want to pick somebody as a personal representative who has several qualities. Number one, you want them to kind of have a good sense of financial stuff and and matters like that so they can they can deal with that. You know, I have a friend who's really, really good and really, really smart and is scared to death to fill out a tax form because they don't quite, just the finances don't make sense to them. So you don't want to pick that type of person. You want to pick somebody who can understand finances. You want to pick somebody who's trustworthy, who will carry out your decisions and if you can do it you want to pick somebody who's not afraid of people not liking them or getting their feelings hurt now back to the Craig Silverman show welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge 
It's a privilege and an honor to welcome one of Colorado's most esteemed lawyers, Ed Barad, into Craig's Lawyers Lounge. This is the place where prominent attorneys come to relax, tell war stories, kick around current events, and my goodness, what current events we have as we talk late Friday afternoon. Ed Barad, welcome to the lounge. Thank you, Craig. Pleasure to be here with you. Tell everybody your qualifications to be here. Are you a Colorado lawyer? And if so, why did you become one? How long ago did you accomplish that? And tell us about your amazing legal career. Well, thank you for overstating how great that was. I had 46 years of practicing law, graduated from the University of Colorado, undergraduate and in law, went to work as a trial lawyer for five years and figured that wouldn't be a good way to last it out. So I became a real estate lawyer and I've been a real estate lawyer for, oh, so 46 minus five. So for 41 years. I've been a partner at the law firm of Brownstein Hyatt, Brownstein Hyatt, Farber, Shrek. We're a firm with uh, 270 lawyers in, in seven states. We had a real estate department of some size. We had about 50 lawyers in real estate. And a big strength in Washington, we're the largest lobbyist in Washington. That's unbelievable. How long have you been a partner with Brownstein? I've been a partner there for 30 plus years, probably 33 years. Wow. To see it grow like that, bunch of CU law grads, it makes me proud that you guys succeeded that way and you've become so powerful. I always respected you for primarily one reason, Ed, and that is my father and my brother, my father, Sheldon, my brother, Bill, they're both gone now, but they were great real estate attorneys. And they had tremendous respect for you. They were great lawyers. And I particularly loved your father. He did me a lot of good things that uh, helped me understand law. So it's a small world. Yeah. I also liked you because you were not cookie cutter in your politics, but you were willing to get political. I'll let you describe yourself. Are you a Democrat, a Republican, liberal, conservative? What are you, Ed Broad? Well, I don't want to fit myself into a label but uh, or into a box that way. So my original intention was to always be independent. We had a partner run for office named Tom Strickland and ran for U.S. Senator twice. Didn't make it. But I decided to register to help Tom. So I registered Democrat. I don't know, maybe 15 years ago. But before that, I've always been, I've, I've, I've been consistently moderate and I would say a right of middle. But with what's going on recently in American politics and with the leadership of this president, I've been forced so far to the left, I can't even believe what's happened to me. I uh, have strong feelings about where America is going and under this leadership very strong feelings. That's why I wanted to give you an opportunity to speak out. I can see it. I know you. And frankly, I'm impressed. I think everybody should be like Ed Barad. Tell us how you view what's going on right now and why you are so dedicated to getting involved. Well, I'm just signed up as a poll watcher, so I am getting involved and I'm making calls for Jewish Democrats of Colorado organization that formed out of Atlanta, and I've been the 
captain of that team in Colorado to be able to get out the vote for Biden and for Hickenlooper. Um, we have other races. Uh, another race I'm involved in is Diane Mitzbush in Congress District 3 on the Western Slope, which runs from northern Colorado in Steamboat, where I spend a lot of time, all the way down to Pueblo through Aspen Vale. And she's running against a QAnon follower. And I've seen 20 QAnon believers running for Congress and the Senate on the Republican side. So Right. You're talking about Lauren Boebert, QAnon. We're talking about it quite a lot this episode because I have on Brian Stelter from CNN and a dude named Craig Silverman from BuzzFeed who keep track of these things. And to me, QAnon is just a reiteration of the protocols of the elders of Zion, where they say, hey, these strange people, be they globalists, elite, Jews, they're coming for your children. Maybe they need the blood for matzah. Maybe they're going to have sex trafficking. And the hero is Donald Trump. He's the guy who can save you. Where have we heard this story before, Ed? I mean, for, for any semitism, uh, when did it start is with the protocols of the elders of Zion in the 1800s and uh, the early 1800s in Russia, and there's always a libel against Jews that QAnon has picked up. Now, I call it, I see it as being anti-Semitic. I see it as being a terrorist organization. I see it as being a conspiracy organization. I see it as uh, what they call 100 people who are pedophiles in government and in uh, business controlling the world. And that's pushed me to the left. I mean, and those people are coming into my government and it's infecting my government I need to have leadership that takes back control of the government. So Trump is indicating that he is not opposed to QAnon because they, quote, like him. That is the most electrifying, chilling thing that I have seen in American politics for a president to endorse a group that has so much hatred and violence. And I saw it again in the election. I mean, in the in the first debate, which was nothing but chaos that he infected it with. That Proud Boys stuff, it sent a chill through me. I know who the Proud Boys are. They're threatening to descend on Portland in the thousands. I've seen what they've done in Colorado, showing up at the rallies put on by the local right-wing radio station, Denver Trump Radio. And what I heard the other night, Ed Barad, was Donald Trump threatening America. Hey, if this election doesn't go my way, the Proud Boys are standing by. Right. Stand by. Stand down and stand by. That doesn't mean that I condemn it. He condemned it the next day when all of his people told him that the whole world saw what a racist he is. And not just a racist, but inciting violence on top of that. And we saw it in Charlottesville. There's fine people on both sides. We saw it in Michigan when he stood with the militia who was outside the state capitol. That's chilling. That's violence. And I know that he has spread his violence and it's radiated. And he's, he's opened the throats of people who have not had the ability to express that in public. Now, Proud Boys is saying, just like David Duke did, I'm I'm so right. glad that he's endorsed us. We have it now. We can be unleashed. I know it. But the apologist, like Dennis Prager for Charlottesville, I heard everything he said. 
the first thing he said, and it was at Bedminster, in fact, with Shulkin, his VA director at the time. Then he took a mulligan, and then he took another mulligan. You and I play golf. Look, you can't take mulligans. When Heather Heyer is murdered by white nationalists, you don't talk about there being good people on both sides, do you? Unless you're a racist. Right. He said what he believes, and then he was told to be more compromising and diplomatic so that he could fool America. But he doesn't fool America. He may be fooling 40% of America, but it makes me very, very angry and very, very upset. But I think the greatest thing that I see with, that I saw through the through the debate and that I read about and that I know the Republican Party is ready for, which is another story, the complicity of the Republican Party to bring us to this moment is that He's trying to attack a free and fair election procedure, and this is the heart of democracy. So the attack on democracy by Trump and Republican co-conspirators, they called them collaborators in Vichy, France. These are collaborators attacking the democracy for the sake of power, attacking democracy for the sake of hatred. It's unbelievable state of affairs that we are now in, and I'm involved deeply to try to obtain his removal by free and fair election. Right, and you are trying to cost me sleep because I heard about that Barton Gilman piece in The Atlantic postulating how this could be the election that will break America. And I'm glad I didn't read it at night because it would give me nightmares. Ed, you are a lawyer renowned for your ability to put together complicated deals. But the essence of that story is that other lawyers working for Trump and with bad conduct and bad motives, I don't know, think about Mitch McConnell, they have mechanisms where they intend to steal and cheat to win this election. Am I right? Absolutely. We're worried about, in Colorado, we're worried about there being voter suppression by virtue of Republican operatives hanging around outside the election, the drop boxes or the places where the election occurs, where people are cast their ballot. We're worried about, I mean, look what happened. Look what happened in Texas. I mean, here's the thing is this is very well understood by Trump. If he can obtain enough chaos in the election process by bringing lawsuits to obtain no result in the interregnum, which is from uh, November 3 through January 20, if We have not decided on a president by then. The 12th Amendment throws this into Congress. And in Congress, it's one vote per state. There's 26 red states. There are 23 plus maybe another blue states. So 26, I heard him mention in one of his speeches, at one of his gatherings. So Right, that's the premise of the Gelman piece. He says Trump will never concede. Do you agree with that? He will never concede. And that he will defy the results of the election no matter what they are. He will defy the results by by this. He was what he's going to do and what they intend to do and what they have been they were ready to do this in Gore v. Bush. Scott, the governor of Florida, 
had his own slate of electors ready to go. They were Republican electors. And if it gets down to the point where there cannot be a, a certified decision of who the electors are by the time they are supposed to be seated, which is on the 6th of January, then each legislature is responsible for, because the Constitution is unclear on this, their own electors. So you could have Republican slates of electors when Democrats won the vote, but the vote count is being contested, and they will contest it in all those states. Tim Worth is on a commission that has foreseen this for months now, and they are working on trying to understand how to prevent it, understand it. They've got Democratic lawyers ready to go, and the Republican Party has spent $17 million, and that's their budget for Republican lawyers. I'm sure the Democratic Party has something similar at this point. But again, well, yeah. I'm sure you'll give me Tim Worth's numbers so I can get him on the podcast. How is he? Former Senator Tim Worth. It's good to know that he's still alive. Last time I remember, he was with Ted Turner on a ranch in Montana, but he's working to save democracy. Tim Worth hasn't given up. I heard him on The Daily. I heard him on The New York Times. So he hasn't given up and he's articulate and he's calm and he's a great leader. So don't you think there's a special responsibility of lawyers? I mean, we take a pledge and oath to the Constitution. We understand how things are fair and when they're not. I'm worried about the rule of law with Bill Barr involved. Don't we as lawyers have to get involved? Yes. I I don't know that people see their oaths today. The way morality has been diluted in the modern world makes me, you know, I used to, I gave my life to the rule of law. I gave my life to the study of law and writing it in a fair contract that I knew would be enforced. You take the Mueller report and have it thrown into a letter by Barr in a perverted summary of what that was so that America would see this president as not having colluded when all they said was he didn't commit criminal conspiracy, but he did collude. And you have that and you have an attorney general that doesn't pay attention to his oath. He disregards his oath. There is no justice to go to in situations that have existed like this in America for since the formation of the Justice Department. And so when was that? I don't know. From the start of America, I see these things being torn down by Donald Trump and those that follow Donald Trump and those that collaborate with him. And it grieves me deeply. Let's be optimistic. I see a lawyer on the horizon who could help the American people through what's to come. There's a guy named Benjamin Ginsburg. You already brought up Bush v. Gore, the Florida recount. He was on the Republican side. He was a go-to guy, just like for big real estate deals in Colorado. You go get Ed Barad. If you are on the right and you need an election lawyer, you go get Ben Ginsburg. Well, he's signed up to be a consultant with CNN, and I've heard him enough to know that he thinks this attack on all-male ballots are crazy, that there is no case to support the fraud, and he's not going to go along with it. Are you familiar with Ben Ginsburg, and am I too optimistic? I am, and I respect him deeply, and I think he's brilliant and has tremendous knowledge. 
And I think you may be a little bit optimistic about something that he's not sure he can predict. There hasn't been election fraud. If you want to talk about that with certainty, I mean, there's been like less than one thousandth of one percent in the last 13 years. Not according to my president. Right. So this is this is the thing that we have today is someone who can lie in office like this and have his voice heard and amplified by a news network and a propaganda network that and a, and a social media network that we've never had before. And so QAnon finds voice in social media. And, you know, my friends, my former friends who are Republicans, they find voice in Fox News. And it's just a different world, Craig. No, I, I understand. I just had Brian Stelter on. He wrote the book on Fox News called Hoax. And it's not just Fox News. It's talk radio. You hear one-sided crap from some people who know better. It's just ridiculous. But let me give you one more reason for hope, because as a matter of common sense, it's unfortunate that some states won't count the ballots as they come in. Colorado does. Ohio, Florida does. We're probably going to have to wait on Pennsylvania, right? But if Ohio and Florida come out good for Biden, and if he wins Colorado by 10 or 12 points, can't we extrapolate that Donald Trump is getting murdered all over the country? Yeah, that's what we can do. But there will be attacks on the vote in Florida. I mean, that's why Michael Bloomberg, he put $100 million into Florida so that we could win it and we could win it decisively and win it early so that so that you wouldn't have what is the red mirage mm-hmm. where those that go are mostly red who go to the polls and vote. When the blue wave comes within the next three, five, six days sometimes, and that we can believe it because we win in the East Coast early. So that's a big thing if Florida, if we win Florida, we've won the election. And that's why that money is going there. Well, good. Tell us about being a poll watcher. What did you learn at your class? Did you learn some self-defense, some kung fu or taekwondo? No, can't do anything of that like that. <laughs> what we do is we have we we understand what can be done in election procedures. We understand what kind of challenges can be uh, made and what kinds of things judges cannot call foul for. And if we see that, we can be six feet away from the judges. If we see that, we call Ring Central for, they call it the fly team. We call the fly team of Colorado lawyers. There's 13, 15 of them for the Democratic Party to take charge of it and send somebody over to back us up and determine what's going on at our precinct. So it's very well organized. And we have a list of uh, things that are uh, that can be done and, and cannot be done, such as uh, electioneering within a hundred feet, um, such as putting pressure. The thing that I worry about is the, a show of force outside of a hundred feet. You know, there was the thing that happened in the Biden Gore election in Florida. They called it the Brooks Brothers Revolt, where people with arms and blue blazers and ties they actually showed up near the polls to intimidate with guns. And we are an open carry state. 
I don't think that could happen. Nobody's wearing a blazer and tie anymore. Although I did today, but because I was on television, Colorado Inside Out on Friday night, you can catch the replay. But I was curious about something you said, Ed, about lost friendships. I mean, this has gotten personal. This is different than a normal election, right? Well, yeah. I mean, first of all, you can't discuss it because each side thinks the other's stupid, right? And from my perspective, if you can't see that there's an attack on the democracy, if you can't see that the democracy that we built under Washington and Jefferson and Adams and Lincoln and Reagan and Obama and people who respected the law uh, and Gore who conceded, if you can't see that that means something to yourself and your children and your children's children, then you can't see. In fact, you become my enemy. And I just don't want to be in that situation. I want to be where we were, where we used to be, where we could have a conversation and I could accept and compromise. But here is a direct attack on the democracy to participate in casting a vote for that. Forget the man, forget the buffoonery, forget the fact that he is an absolute fool and psychopath. Just the attack on democracy throws me into a, the side that I think is is telling truth. Plus the disgusting cheating, not just on the golf course, and you and I love to golf, and we may get back to that in a little bit, but my gosh, the New York Times exposed what a tax cheat this guy is. 750 bucks? You've worked with a lot of high finances and whatnot. When you read that New York Times article, what are your thoughts? Well, I'm not sure that it's cheating. I think that there's $70 million that's under audit. And I think his father may have cheated on reporting valuations. Yes. And there may have been cheating on inheritance tax that was due. Yes. And on valuing golf courses, one way for loans, another way for the tax collector. Isn't that a crime? Yeah, that is a crime. That is a absolute, uh, that is a, a fraud on somebody. That's true. So you're right on that. I just don't know how people can back somebody like that, which brings us to Cory Gardner. I can't back Cory Gardner because he backs Donald Trump. Cory Gardner is the second most prolific voter with Trump in the Senate. Number two, for him to be doing what he's doing makes him a collaborator in all of this. Doesn't that surprise you? I I mean, I knew Cory Gardner a bit. I thought he had more integrity than that. What about you? I think power corrupts. And I think there is not much reason for the Republican senators besides Corker and Flake and a little bit by Mitt Romney. There's not much reason for them to have not allowed evidence in the impeachment trial. There's, There's not much reason for them to have followed Trump and not criticized Trump and to disgrace the democracy by not criticizing him again and again and again, except to retain power. Right. What about a competing interest, a love of America? How about Cory Gardner could have been an American hero? I thought he was better than that. He went to CU Law School like we did. Well, the party's been infected by Trump. If they don't, if they don't hew to the line, they don't get 
any of the vote that is the Republican vote in the primary, and they don't get it in the election, and this is why they can't open their mouths. I mean, Marco Rubio. What a sellout. Jeb Bush. Where Where is is he? He said the guy was chaos, and now where are you? You guys have a voice. Where's Where's Bill Owens? Where's Bill Owens? He's yeah, he he's a voice muted long time ago, and for for the I'm glad of it. But the fact that there's no leadership. I mean, Lindsey Graham. Do you think John McCain is rolling in his grave over his great friend Lindsey? Didn't one of your partners throw a presidential fundraiser for Lindsey Graham? Oh, sure. I mean, yeah. what's up with that guy? And how do you square it, Ed Barad? And I know this is a dicey topic, but your law firm, the biggest lobbying firm in America, they have relations with the Lindsey Graham. Can you stomach it? Or are you glad you are retired? I'm not going to answer All that. All right, you don't have I, to. Let me ask you this about poll watching, because this is the one thing where I see it's kind of vulnerable. You know, in court, you can get a non-expert to validate handwriting. I could say, yeah, that looks like my wife's signature in a court of law. But isn't that pretty subjective, the people who are deciding whether the signature matches? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I found out today that there's machines that do this, that have the signature recognition software. So we don't have to sign. I mean, you're talking about the ballots that we send in. Yes. I think. Colorado has a statute that I'm not an election lawyer, but has a statute that says that if uh, your 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 signature is not voided, your ballot is not voided because your signature is unclear or doesn't match. I, I really do. By the way, I think we have a very enlightened state because of the legislature and the laws that have been passed and an incredible light in our Secretary of State, Jenna Griswold. She is she is now advising states all over the country about mail-in voting. Now, Jenna is a friend, and she was a guest on this podcast a couple weeks ago, and she got the better of Ken Buck in their kerfuffle this week. But boy, she goofed up last night with the tweet telling the media they should press pause and not announce any election results. She had to take it down. It was pretty embarrassing, but at least that's what a Democrat can do, apologize, which she did, said her tweet was ill-informed. So I don't want to throw too much dirt on Jenna, but she kind of had an unforced error last night, Thursday night. And, and she was pretty lucky that other news overwhelmed that. But I know you've been busy studying to be a poll watcher, Ed Barad. I'm praying for a landslide, and I want to talk to you about religion. Happy New Year, first of all. And there, there's a lot of reasons for Jewish people to support Joe Biden. One thing I love is this guy, Ron Klain, K-L-A-I-N, a top advisor to Joe Biden. He's a Jewish guy, and I think he's smart as hell. Tell us if you agree with that and what a good Jewish person should do in this election. Well, first of all, yes, I've seen Ron Klain and I, I've listened to him and I think he is excellent. And he was, well, when that slate of electors was being prepared by Rick Scott, Republican electors and Gore Bush, 
McLean was down there in a hotel getting his own slate of electors together. That's what where how far back he goes. He was deeply involved. I t- I I don't want to, and I cannot tell any Jewish person what to do except for this. I see one. First of all, we know that seventeen percent in twenty sixteen, seventeen percent of Jews voted Republican. So it's been the case that Jews have voted Democrat for a long, long time, and it's still in overwhelming numbers. But I see a right, call it a religious right, but it's even a non-religious right, that are very, very much concerned about Israel and concerned about Obama's effect on Israel and think that Trump will have a bad effect on Israel. I don't think he will. I see the... You mean Biden will have a bad effect on Israel? Yeah, sorry. That's right. Yeah. And I don't think he will. I think that Israel is not the only issue. Even though I have a love of Israel, and I've been there 15 times, and I appreciate with the, from the bottom of my soul the need for a Jewish state because of what's happened to the Jewish people from the beginning of time. And the I'm, a, I'm an immigrant. I'm an immigrant. I'm a, I'm a grandson, a great-grandson of uh, a grand, great-grandfather who was burned out of uh, Shenidoa, Poland, and and has sent his family over to America, but he couldn't get in, so he went to Israel and died there in 1918 in in famine when the Ottoman Empire was in control. So, listen, Israel is a safe place for Jews, and we need Israel. But if there's not a democracy, if there's not an American democracy, there is no Israel. And we have to have the American democracy. So I say to anyone who feels that they need to vote on that issue, that it's not right by me. Okay, let's get down to something we know about golf. You are an outstanding golfer, and I expect you could beat Donald Trump easily. You're about the same age, but I just like your swing better. So (laughs) when I think about Donald Trump, and golf. I've had Rick Riley on my show. I know what a cheater he is. And if he had to play Ed Barad at Inverness, he's not going to win. So he's either going to try to cheat to win, or better yet, he's going to find a reason not to show up to have the match. And I think Donald Trump is smart enough right now to read the polls, understand after people explained it to him that he screwed the pooch in that debate on Tuesday night. He was awful. Who could like him? He's going to lose. So maybe he's not going to show up for the election. I don't know. What's going on? Am I on to something? He's going to show up for the election. He's not. Uh, he, unless he dies. I mean, he's in Walter Reed right now. I know. He's going to I, I, and I don't think he's faking. Do you? No. Why would he think he's in Walter Reed? He wouldn't go. This man lives in a delusion of a psychotic. We're not talking about just narcissism here. It's the extreme 
it's the uh, it's George Conway wrote the article on this, and Trump's niece wrote the book on this. And this is a, such an extreme form of narcissism. He lives in a delusionary world. He thinks he can still win the election. He thinks he can come out and he can be persuasive to the American electorate when he's never going to get higher than his 40%. The debate didn't give him any new voters. He can't attract any undecideds from creating the chaos that he created by never shutting up and interrupting continually. And there's no hope left in my mind for this other than suppression of the vote. Now, you see Greg Abbott in Texas. One drop box per county? Yeah. Oh, my that's God. Just, that's just the beginning of it. You know, we're talking about voter suppression as the Republican tactic to win this election right now. I know it, but I still don't think he's going to win. Just like you could give Trump a few mulligans, he's still not going to beat you. And just at some point, he realized that he was going to have to sell the Plaza Hotel. He, he realized the Taj Mahal in Atlantic City was going to go bankrupt. So don't you think he has the capacity to whimper away? Hey, I'm sick. I can't do it. I would have won. We all know that. but. Hey, I, I gave it my best, but I'm on to something else. You no, know, he's not going to be on to something else. He's going to be on to Trump radio. He's going to continue to infect, infect the American right. He's going to continue to deepen conspiracy theories. He's not going to win the election, but he may win these 26 states if Tim Worth and the Democratic Party and you and me don't figure out how to resist this and make sure that we win these lawsuits that are going to happen to try to bring chaos through the time when the electoral college has to be seated. If there are crimes, and I think there have been, tax fraud, a host of charitable fraud, the crime of perverting the last election by paying off Stormy Daniels. He would not have won without that illegal contribution. Michael Cohen's doing time for that. Bottom line, Ed Barad, should Trump be prosecuted if he loses? Oh, yes, on, on any prosecutable issue. I mean, he should have been prosecuted by Mueller. Yes. There's, no, there, there's no regulation. It's just that says that a president uh, could not be tried for, I think Clinton was for perjury, right? So well, Mueller did not do a good job. And I think there are, are a lot of laws. So no mercy, no pardon for the good of the country, no Nixon-like treatment. No, it's not for the good of the country. This is a, this is a disease that needs to be. I know it's like Scarface. Al Pacino did not go down easily. He said, let me introduce you to my little friend. And he started shooting up the place with weapons. I'm worried. This guy has bigger weaponry than Scarface ever did. Are you worried about violence? Yes, I'm worried about violence. I don't know how it'll break out, but I, I think we're at war here. We have a cultural war. I am worried about violence very much. We already saw it in Kenosha, right? And outside the White House to go to that photo op for St. John's Church with Fat Bill Barr right next to Donald Trump, you know, using yeah. tear gas, smashing people who are 
just there for peaceful protest in a place they had a right to be. And, uh, and getting General Milley to follow along. And this is his genius. He can co-opt people. He's co-opted an entire party. Did you ever think you would see this? Did you ever think that the system of checks and balances that we have would be completely perverted and usurped? It's impossible. When he won the election, everybody said, maybe he'll moderate. Maybe our system of checks and balances. Well, they said, surely our system of checks and balances will protect us. Well, it won't. Right. But it was a reasonable belief at the time. I thought Cory Gardner, who didn't even vote for him, called him a buffoon. I thought he would fairly represent Colorado, but he's not into that. He is sold out and I'm really disappointed in him. And I've called some prominent people that you know, and I know you've worked on them too, and I've yelled at them, people who I have never even thought to speak disrespectfully to, but I've said, what are you doing? How can you back this guy? How can you not get on Cory Gardner to turn away from this bully, this mobster? And they listen to me, but I don't see anything change. What about you? Have you gotten anybody to change their mind? Oh, no, I haven't got anybody to consider. I mean, I had very close friends that I just couldn't believe what they were doing. And they're telling me that they're listening to Dennis Prager. I know Prager. I mean, I heard Prager. He's as clear as a bell, but I didn't think he went out of his way to support this criminality. Yeah, he has. I know about Salem Media, and I brought on guests to talk about Dennis Prager and That's another guy I've lost a lot of respect for. But here's the beauty of it. I found even better friendship with Ed Barad. That's because we agree. It was so thrilling to get you into Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Give us some optimism. How are things going to turn out right with you as a poll watcher? What could go wrong? Well, Biden's going to win this election. And ultimately, the Supreme Court is going to stay out of it. And we're going to be able to get back control of government because the states are not going to take on the doomsday scenario completely. And it will not be 26 states against 24. There will be enough electors for us to win that majority. So I just think we have to win this election. And then... I think the chaos can follow, but we'll win out in the chaos. There's too many good people in America that don't want to see it destroyed. And the article by Barton Gelman is the destruction of American democracy. And I just don't think that a minority of America can bring that on. I hope not. Ed Barad, thank you for coming into the lounge. I had a good time. I hope you did, too. I did. Thank you, my buddy. Thank you, Ed. Sandler Training is one of the leading sales training and leadership development companies in all the world. If you're interested in increasing your win rates and revenue margins, increasing the number of salespeople exceeding quota, addressing sales manager professional development, reducing your turnover of sales personnel, it's all waiting for you at Sandler Training. Call my pal Dan Levitt at 303-829-2107 and tell him Craig sent you. Hey, Danny, what happens if somebody calls and says, hey, Craig sent me? Well, Craig, for the first few minutes, we'll probably tell some jokes about you. What? Yeah. And then I'll dig into, you know, 
what what's going on in their world and whether or not I'm a fit for what you know might might be able to help them or not. He's an easy guy to talk to. I've been talking to him for so many decades. Call my old friend Dan Levitt, 303-829-2107. 303-829-2107. Tell him Craig sent you. Hey there, I'm not going to take a lot of your time. I've been a lawyer almost 40 years. My brother was a lawyer, my father a Denver lawyer, my grandfather a Denver lawyer. If you have a legal problem, call me, 303-861-2800, 303-861-2800. If I'm not the right lawyer for you, I bet I know somebody who is. 303-861-2800, thank you. Gosh, it's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. (laughs) Now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at MB LLC.com. Now back to the Craig Silverman Show. Dave Gunders, my troubadour. I like you for so many different reasons, but part of it is your charisma. Thank you, Craig. We talk a lot about religion, but some religions have a charismatic element where they speak in tongues. Have you ever seen that? I've never seen it. I've seen it depicted in movies, that sort of thing. Someone overtaken by the spirit. Yeah. Ain't that something? It's it's something. And uh, that's not so much what the song was about, but I thought uh, in terms of the song Talking in Tongues, I kind of gave it a different meaning. Amy Coney Barrett, the nominee for the Supreme Court, I think she's going to make it. She's reportedly part of a charismatic Catholic group that speaks in tongues. Well, these people are very affected by God, and I, I think they, they think that he can speak through them, and not necessarily God, but I think it can also be other forces that can sometimes drive them. My father, may he rest in peace, Sheldon Silverman, loved a good tongue sandwich. How about you? Have you ever had one? I stay away from that, Craig. Why? I just don't like looking a tongue in the face. What about eggs? Do you eat those? Yes. Do you know where they come from? As long as there's no green ham or tongue. Anyway, talking in tongues, particularly apropos this week with the debate. Did you watch that national tragedy? Yes. And I think that's appropriately termed right there. I was aghast. It was embarrassing. And I went through all kinds of emotions, but I don't think it really served the American people. But your lyrics to this song really fit. Remember how your song starts? The song starts, trouble getting through. Is it my word choice or is it you not wanting to hear? Well, we heard a lot of that last night. Great song. Let's hear it. Talking in Tongues by Dave Gunders. 
great song and the way it's hard charging from the outset and what is that electric guitars at the end electric guitars all the way through who is the angels singing in the background was that rachel or sarah i can't remember at the moment oh no one of my beautiful daughters let me see maybe both of them great song talking in tongues apropos of the debate apropos of amy coney barrett my troubadour, Dave Gunders, give us words of wisdom for this week. Let's all hang in there and hope for the best this election. Gotta hope for the best. Thank you, troubadour. This is the Craig Silverman Show, and I'm Craig. Our democracy is at stake. It's never been more important to let your voice be heard. 
Join the conversation and fight for our democracy. It is our duty and our constitutional right. Follow The Craig Silverman Show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at C. Silverman Show. Be a part of the change. Now, back to The Craig Silverman Show. What will happen next? It's anybody's guess. I'm grateful to have covered this eventful week. The great guests, I want to thank Ed Barad. Pleasure, my man. I admire you and your efforts to bring truth and justice back to America. And then Craig Silverman from Canada. I'm a little mad still that you got to Twitter first, but it's all good. What an interesting dude. And you came up with fake news. It's tied to our name forever. Thank you, my brother, from another mother. And then there's Brian Stelter, who I really like. I read his book, and I encourage you to get hoax as well. Our lives are a little connected now, and that's cool. I learned more about Brian Stelter. I went to Wikipedia, and he's a Methodist, although he married a Jewish gal, and he apparently is going to raise Jewish children. Like, you got to be Jewish if you want to be the subject of a conspiracy theory, right? See you next Saturday. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.